Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm Ed Hammond, Bloomberg's Deal Reporter, and I'm joined today by Brooke Sutherland and Gillian Tan, both of whom are writers for Bloomberg Gadfly. So, Brooke, I want to start with you talking about the deal that was just announced late last night, which is United Technologies' uh, $30 billion takeover of Rockwell Collins. I think it's one of the biggest deals ever in the aerospace industry and one of the biggest mergers so far announced this year. So we saw Rockwell itself do a takeover of BE Aerospace late last year. That's only just been consummated. We've now seen United Technologies come in and buy this enlarged Rockwell Collins. What's going on? Why are we seeing this consolidation in the space? You know, I think Boeing and Airbus have really been tightening the screws on their suppliers, and they're pushing uh, these providers of aerospace parts to lower their costs. And then they're also increasingly sort of encroaching on this territory with their own investments in component making uh, or aftermarket services. And so, you know, I think uh, some of the motivation for this deal is to sort of give United Technologies additional heft that will give it a stronger negotiating position as it goes into these contract conversations with Boeing and Airbus. That was also the motivation for Rockwell Collins B Aerospace. And now you're just talking about an even bigger entity. So I like this point you make in your, your piece that was published uh, last night on Gadfly. So you say United Technologies and Rockwell have talked about having now this strength and ability to meet customers' demands and for the digitally enhanced aircraft. Some of this sounds very sophisticated. Um, (laughs) Now, you say that sounds good in theory, and it isn't without logic, but it is also an expensive and complex gamble with more opportunities to go wrong than right. So can you just expand on that? Like, what could go wrong here? What They are enlarged, as you say, that should, in theory, give them more negotiating power in the, the deals that they come up with with Boeing and with Airbus. What could go wrong? Well, it's... Integrating any kind of massive deal is very complicated. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a sure thing that things would have gone smoothly with Rockwell Collins B Aerospace. And now United Technologies is coming in and will essentially have to integrate two deals because Rockwell Collins literally only just closes B Aerospace deal in April. So it hasn't really made that much headway yet in terms of integrating those two companies. United Technologies will have to pick up where it left off and then integrate Rockwell Collins. And when you do that, you create opportunities for sort of supply chain foul-ups or delays and deliveries of parts to Boeing and Airbus and other customers. And that's very risky, especially at a time when those two plane makers are ramping up their production. And you could have a situation where Instead of gaining negotiating heft with these companies, United Technologies sort of undermines its position. You know, and I I think there's also a question as to, you know, is there a limit to the benefits of scale? United Technologies is already a very big aerospace system supplier. Are Boeing and Airbus all of a sudden going to say, oh, yeah, now you're even bigger. Let's let's give you a better deal. We get it. I mean, they, this is something that's very important to them as their investors pressure them to improve cash, cash flow and profitability. I don't really see them backing off from that. And I I just wonder how significant these benefits are really going to be. And on the flip side of that, you know, Boeing and Airbus have sort of both put their hands up and said, we're sort of concerned about this deal and the distractions that might result and have talked about using sort of all of the means available to them to sort of take a hard look at this and decide if this is something they want to go along with. Now, the interesting thing from sort of just looking at what has been said this morning is, you know, they're talking about, so Rockwell and United are talking about some big synergy numbers. I think you pointed out in your piece that this is, there, it is an increase in scale, but it's sort of lateral scale because there is very little overlap between these two businesses, which should uh, make synergy slightly harder to find. But that would also suggest that there's less antitrust risk. 
So it's interesting, you know, Boeing, as you say, came out with this very hard statement this afternoon saying they're going to take a tough look at this. They are going to do what they can to, you know, to make sure this doesn't in any way impair them as a customer or indeed some, something they would pass on to their customers. But what can they do? Are there any levers that they can realistically pull here to try and stop this? Well, there is an overlap, but there is, you know, some precedent for just sheer scale being a problem in a certain industry. And, you know, this is something that GE bumped up against with its takeover of Honeywell in Europe way back in 2000. And, you know, it was also sort of an issue that United Technologies raised when Honeywell was trying to buy it a few years ago. Now, those two companies did have more overlap and would have been more problematic, but it was also just an issue of these very, very influential customers just not liking the fact that their biggest suppliers would be significantly larger. So it's going to be a really interesting antitrust case to sort of see what the government does with this and whether they sort of take Boeing and Airbus's concerns into account if, you know, they do start to to formulate those more clearly as a, as a protest. And whether they'd be willing to maybe block something that doesn't have as much traditional overlap. And the other thing that kind of obviously jumps out about this is we've we've just talked about it. They've just done a deal. Rockwell is a company that is kind of not really a company at all at the moment because you're buying a company that is sort of trying to subsume another completely different business. Why did United do this now? What was the, Why not do Rockwell before Rockwell bought beef or wait six months until Rockwell has consummated the beef deal and integrated some of that stuff? It just seems like an odd time to strike. I completely agree. I think the timing is one of the biggest question marks here. Um, and, you know, there was an activist investor, I think you reported it, sort of in there trying to stir up interest in Rockwell Collins before the BE Aerospace deal closed. At the time, Rockwell Collins wasn't nearly as expensive. And from United Technologies' perspective, the real crown jewel here is Rockwell Collins' core avionics business. I mean, the seat, I guess, if you want to talk about like added scale, BE Aerospace's seats and aircraft interiors helps, but that that's not really what they're after here. That's not the really valuable part of this deal. And so that does raise a lot of questions, I think, for on the minds of United Technologies investors of, is there something bad coming with the core business that they're trying to distract from? Is there something we should be worried about? And they're trying to use this deal to sort of shift the conversation away. We don't really know that now. At this point, they've confirmed their 2017 organic growth and EPS targets. But I think that is sort of a looming question of, of is there something coming? Should we be a little concerned here? So I, I want to flip back to that, but just quickly on this point. So they, in buying Rockwell, it's they've they sort of absorbed also the premium that Rockwell paid for Beeve, which exactly. as you say, at the time, an activist came into stock and said, guys, what are you doing? You're going to overpay for this company, you should sell yourself. And in a way that's now happened, but not you know, not in in quick enough time to avoid them buying beef and then someone else now taking on that cost. So just quickly looking at the rest of United Technologies, there has been a lot of talk among uh, the analysts and some reporting as well, suggesting that United Technologies may use this deal as a sort of platform to then go and break the company up in a in a much bigger scale. What could we see happen here in the near term? You know, so what they said right now is that they're not going to do a breakup and they're going to integrate the Rockwell Collins deal first and then sort of see at that point if they think their stock is trading at a discount to its intrinsic value, and then have the conversation about, well, should we break up? And, you know, to a certain degree, I, I can understand that. And they're trying, you know, this is going to be a very complicated deal. Like we said, you're now integrating two acquisitions. And, you know, they, they probably do need some of that cash flow to play down the significant debt load that they're taking on. But there's also just 
sort of a, you know, a risk in waiting on this, that, you know, you are setting up the company for a very prolonged period of disruption. If you talk about, you know, they're not looking really for all the synergies to come in until year four after this closes. And then you say, okay, well, now we're going to spin this off. And we've seen with like Dow and DuPont, which were merging and then going to do this big three-way split that opens the door for investors to complain, to meddle, to try to change the company's plans. Or in the case of Eaton or Johnson Controls, they sort of did this halfway transformation, but had these sort of lingering businesses that didn't really fit and drag down their valuation. And that's been a really big problem for them. And they've sort of been stuck with these businesses that now they can't really easily get rid of. And investors haven't really been willing to give them a break for that. And so, you know, there are sort of two sides to this. And I do think, you know, a lot of people are hoping eventually United Technologies does break up. And it seems that like a Rockwell Collins deal would pave the way to that. But we just have to sort of see if they're willing to take that jump. Well, it'll be interesting to see what Greg Hayes, the United CEO, does, uh, you know, in response to what the investors and some people in the market are sort of suggesting he does it. Now, one really interesting thing from our point of view as M&A reports about this deal was that Elite it leaked a month, just about a month before it happened. I remember it well. We broke this story. Um, actually, I was trying to catch a flight back to London. And I missed not one, but two flights trying to get this thing out. Um, but we did eventually get the news. And, uh, you know, other people then followed up. There's been lots of reporting around it before the companies came out and said anything publicly. Now, Gillian, you wrote an excellent piece last week about why deals leak and also what leaking deals kind of means for the, the, the M&A targets that we see out there. Um, the thing that really surprised me, and I, I want you to talk about this a bit, is that when a deal leaks, typically it leads to a higher premium for the target company, which is great for us because it means we can now go to sources and say, hey, guys, like leak us all your deals because guess what? The companies you represent are going to get bought for even more money. Why do you think this is happening? Um, I guess it's obviously it puts the company in play and it immediately as soon as it's known that a company is maybe in talks with a potential bidder, a competitor can come in or another banker can be brought in and they can say, hey, this target's up for sale. Are you sure you guys don't want to jump in, get involved, sort of stop your rival from getting bigger, sort of really taking the power away from the uh, acquirer that's already in talks with that target? Interestingly, in this data, so I think is it Intralinks who've yeah. put together this stuff. So one of the things that I thought was was quite funny about this is that they break it down by sectors and they look at which sectors have, I guess, the leakiest M and A uh, components to them. Consumer seems to be way out front. Not just if you look at 2009 to 2016 average, it's kind of around eight percent of deals link. If you look at just 2016 alone, it's almost sixteen percent of deals, which is way in front of everyone else. Like I cover a lot of consumer companies. I know you also write about consumer companies. What do you think it is about this space that makes it more prone to uh, to this kind of uh, idle chatter? Yeah, I've got a little theory on this. It's that um, bankers who are away from their families, whether they're missing Christmas or Easter or Memorial Day or whatever, um, once a deal leaks, they can point out to their families, they're like, oh, I was working on that deal. And their families have actually heard of the target as opposed to sort of a manufacturing company. No United Technologies. <laughs> a widget maker, right. Well, actually, we should note here because industrial deals are very unleaky as, as a rule. Industrial deals, you know, I think leak. Typically, it's sort of less than 6% of industrial deals leak, which is only energy and power and healthcare have a lower ratio of deals that leak. So that, would, that theory would, would yeah, seem to stack right. up there. So I guess the big one that we were all in some way uh, involved in and, and certainly followed very closely was Unilever and Kraft Heinz, which leaked uh, earlier this year, unfortunately did not leak to Bloomberg. It, it sort of leaked out via Twitter and some some blogs. 
And then the company came out with a statement confirming that, yes, indeed, Unilever had been approached by Kraft Heinz, you know, obviously backed by Warren Buffett. That was interesting because that served at least to some extent to kill the deal. Yeah. Because as soon as it became public, you then had governments both in the UK and in Holland, where Unilever also has a listing, wading in and saying, absolutely no way, we're not going to have someone come in and buy this company. So was this a good example, Gillian, of a, you know the kind of deal where there was a very high price to be paid for it leaking? Yeah, so premature leaking can be like the be all or end all. It can kill a deal, as you saw here. Um, and it's not clear that deal could still come back, but they've had to wait six months. Um, so bankers do, it's not just bankers, but deal makers need to be, I guess, a little bit cautious when they do decide to let some of this chatter slip because, yeah, it can mean the end of a fee for them that could could have been, you know, in the tens of millions. And we've also seen this increase in the number of deals or rather the sort of percentage of deals, if you like, being leaked. It seems like 2016 was a bumper year for deals being leaked. And I'm trying to work out why that is. Is this sort of the, the interlinks go into this? Is there a sort of set of circumstances that have come together to make 2016 a leakier year than, you know, the years 09 to 15? Um, I don't think they get into the reasoning as much. Um, one thing I did notice was that the premium in 2016 compared to t- 2009 to 2016 was actually lower. So that implies that valuations were already higher. So even though the targets still get a larger premium if there is a leak than no leak, the gap is actually narrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So that spread has actually come down and maybe that's because, I don't know, but if there were so many leaks, I mean, 16 was a great year for M&A reports because I think a lot of stuff did leak. Everyone was breaking news left, right and center. And maybe there's been an awareness that, you know, look, if we leak this, it's going to net us a, a higher... A uh, higher price for the target, and then ultimately, I suppose, a higher fee for the advisor should they be being paid as a percentage. Um, which brings me really to the last question, which is, what do you think? And I'd like you both to have a stab at this. What do you think Rockwell would have fetched if it had not leaked? It was an eighteen percent premium, oh, right? Uninterrupted. It was eighteen percent, and obviously, this one did leak. So, what would we be looking at if this handling would this be like fifteen percent, twelve percent? I'm going to go with fifteen because I think that's a nice thing in the middle. Yeah, I guess, yeah, well, like 12 to 15%, maybe around there. Okay. Brooke? I'm going to argue that there wouldn't have been a difference in this Ooh. case. I think Rockwell is such a unique asset, and it's sort of been out there for such a long time, and it's really one of the few sort of pure play aerospace systems companies. I think a lot of people were actually surprised that it wasn't higher, because it's such a good asset with really good growth prospects, and this this is already very expensive, you know, from United Technologies' perspective, but it easily could have been a lot higher, so... Yeah, maybe the exception to the rule. But. Well, interestingly, a lot of the reporting early on suggested it was going to be like 145 to 150. Obviously, mm-hmm. it went for a lot less of that. There was also some uh, notes floating around suggesting there could be a reverse Morris Trust here, which would have affected the overall takeout value. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. There was an expectation it would be higher. That said, 18% does seem like a fairly rich premium. So that's it for this week's episode. You can find more from Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals in real time. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and or any app where you can listen to podcasts. And take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. You can find me on Twitter at EdHammondNY. You can find Gillian on Twitter at Jillian Tan. And you can find Brooke on Twitter at B-L-S-U-T-H. Sarah Patterson is our producer and Alec McCabe is head of podcasts. 